Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Brian Reisman, host of Side Jams, episode number 62, featuring Doc Coyle, guitarist for Bad Wolves, and uh, you have the X-Man podcast, you're a fellow podcaster, basketball fan, uh, active on social media, but in a very measured way, because I know today we want to talk about both your love for basketball and dealing with social and political issues. Um, and thank you for using the uh, pro mic, I know we talked about it just before we got on. Sure, no problem. Because... It's really funny to me. I interview so many people, and I can tell you, especially with singers, how they'll do an interview on their webcam, and I'm like, but you're a singer. Like, don't you have a mic now? Some, someone has even like a, it's so funny, you know? But I like to make sure everybody sounds good, right? Absolutely. Now, obviously, you got back to touring with Papa Roach and Hollywood Undead recently and getting, shaking the rafters again with lots of loud sounds. But also, since you're a big basketball fan, what was the first, actually, what was the first time you went back to a concert, and when was the first time you went back to a basketball game? During all this craziness. Good, good question. What was the first show I went back to? I, I want to say, I don't know if it was the first show, but I feel like it was the, like the first show I actually went to was, was at a, just a bar. It was like a bar show. Um, mm-hmm. Friends band, you know, rock band was playing, but like the first like big show was the, the Megadeth Lamb of God Trivium Hatebreed show. And I was down at five points um, in Orange County and it was, Man, what great energy, man. People were so excited. It was just, a, it was a great kind of celebratory, kind of sigh, sigh of relief kind, kind of moment. I mean, the second I could go out and do go to shows, I was trying to get to everything I, I could. I figured, I was like, you know what? I'm vaccinated. Pretty much done what you can do. And we, you know, we got to get back to doing stuff because, you know, that stuff, even there's the element of me playing and performing and, and kind of how that, is yeah. good for my my mental health and uh, just getting that kind of um, as an exercise is is very kind of vital for me in my life. But going to shows and having that cathartic experience as a as a viewer and and also it's the connective tissue I think of our scene. You know, it's metal and rock exist because of the live environment and how we connect with each other and kind of getting yeah. that that full kind of almost quasi-religious experience of, of enjoying something together. It's really important. And then for basketball, now for you, you're a big sports fan. So what was the first game, and what was that like? So what game did I go? Oh, um, <clears throat> so I have a friend um, who, his name is uh, Becky, um, who works, I think, back around, so I'm, I'm probably pronouncing your last name wrong. I'm sorry, Becky, uh, works for Harmon, and they, they have a AKG, and a bunch of yep. uh, JBL, and so they sponsor the band. And she hits me up. She goes, "Hey, you guys, you want to go to any games?" And she sent me a list of like basketball games and stuff at and hockey games at the Staples Center now the Crypto dot com arena. And so I went to go see the <laughs> Lakers play. Who did they play? Did they, oh, they played the Sacramento Kings. So I, me and I, three other buddies went. Great seats. It was amazing. Sorry, that's my dog. No, it's okay. <laughs> Barking. 
Hopefully she'll stop barking the second thing. How long have you been a basketball fan? Did you play as a kid? Have you played? Yeah, since I then? played I in the funny thing is I didn't start playing till I was almost in high school. Mm-hmm. And um so I kind of got a late start, but I just took to it and I loved it. So I was started playing like right kind of around eighth grade going to ninth grade. And I didn't play in ninth grade, but I played so much I got good enough that by the time I was a sophomore, I started playing on my high school team. And then halfway through that year, I got on the varsity team and I, I really loved it. But I feel like if I would have started early, I probably would have been really good. But because I'm 6'2", it's pretty athletic, mm-hmm. could shoot. Um but a lot of those instincts that if you don't develop them at a younger age, it, it just you're just slightly a, a step behind with some of the, um, you know, the instincts, you know, the th- things that kind of come second nature. But I was what they call a gym rat. You know, I just lived lived in the gym. I, playing basketball is probably my favorite thing about about high school and played as much as I could in the intervening years since. But I've had a lot of back injuries and just a lot of problems, so it's been hard to really play for the last like five years or so, which which sucks because I love it. So maybe one day I'll get a get back in shape yeah. and be able to handle it. But it's just if it's not a back, it's a knee, it's a it's always something neck. I'm just you know <laughs> ankles. Dude, I'm, <laughs> I'm dealing with a torn meniscus right now. I've been doing some PT. I got to get into that surgery. Oh no! I'm like I don't even know how I did it. I guess it's just age. You know, I'd like to say it was something romantic and dramatic, like, you know, playing a game or like I was doing something uh, risky. It's like, no, just, you know, got to go get it done. But I, I imagine for you, the tricky part is if you're you have an injury then in sports that affects your playing on stage because you're moving around a lot. So it's tricky. You have two different things you love to do that require a lot of physical energy and dexterity. Yeah. And, and all of that has affected, uh, you know, my my back and all, all that stuff that, you know, and I, I bartended too for like almost 10 years and that was pretty physically taxing as oh, yeah. well. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it sucks when sometimes your physical limitations, uh, inhibit your ability to do the things you, you love to do. But luckily I had back surgery. I've, you know, learned a, lo- a lot more about my body and core strength and things like that. So that I can at least play, you know, I did the last tour and, and physically held up really well. You know, whoop, uh, trying to cross my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It's weird because you, you know, those things when you're younger, it's like people say, just enjoy it when you're young because you're going to get older and like little things start happening. And it's, you can, I mean, look, we got Rock, I mean, Mick Jagger's still out there. I mean, he's like a, around 80, he's like 80s now, right? I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, as a kid, I played Little League. I did that for three summers and I tried soccer, but I just didn't like, I did not like getting kicked in the shins all the time. That was just not, I was a scrawny kid, so that was really not going to work for me. But I've, it's interesting. What is it about basketball that lured you in? Because I was thinking about I, – I enjoy watching. Like, I don't watch sports, but every, every time I go to a bar with my girlfriend, she's like, you're watching a game. Like, I end up looking at whatever's on the TV. And basketball, to me, feels like it's got the energy. It's not as violent as hockey or football, but it's not as mellow as – sort of, actually, there's, it, it's, there's an aggression, but there's a gracefulness to it to me. What, yeah, what lured mean, you into it? I mean, I, I think there's the obvious connection between – being a fan of it and watching it, you know, I grew up during the era of Michael Jordan and, you know, those Knicks teams from the early nineties and you want to emulate the things you see. And, and to me, the one thing about that sport, probably more than any other sport is the athletes kind of resemble superheroes more than any other sport. They're more, they're the most physically unique, right? If you, if you saw a really top level hall of fame, baseball, baseball player, they still look like a normal guy Basketball yeah. players don't look normal. They're six foot eight. They're two hundred sixty <laughs> pounds. Like they're, they're you know. And it's even if you have like a really jacked football player, they're covered in stuff, right? So you don't really see, but you kind of see these kind of kind of uh, otherworldly physiques, and they fly through the air. You know, it, it's 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 really kind of unique in that in that regard. And I think from a playing standpoint, one thing that's so appealing about it is. If it's just you playing by yourself, you can practice and you can play. If it's you and one other person, you can play one on one. If it's you and three people, you can play twenty one. It's a you know, it's a very adaptable game that you can get something out of it no matter who's around you, so you have a little more control over that, right? It's hard to play you know, you can't play football by yourself. You can't you know, baseball is a little <laughs> a little tough, you know, unless you're at the batting cage. Um so there's something about that that probably uh, is a real key to why it's 
kind of the the predominant urban sport, you know, of, of that that accessibility, you know, and and, and you don't yeah. need a lot. You just need a ball and a hoop. It's not, you know, you hear about how expensive it is um, if your kid plays hockey for all the gear and shuttling them to games and and all all that stuff or or sports like tennis where you need this access. Um, and so it just has that low barrier of, of entry. And I think all sports are inherently like therapeutic, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a t- place where you can kind of shut off the thinking mind and you can just be and react. And there's something about that when you're done playing and you feel, you know, and you're exhausted and you like, you, you can't really get that out anywhere else. And like I said, there is, a, it's, it's very physical. You're bumping into people, you're fighting for rebounds, you're, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's that kind of gladiator element. I think that kind of speaks mm. to, to all of us that, that is very gratifying. Now you're from New Jersey originally, but you're living in LA. So you're still rooting for the hometown or do you like, you're more of a, I'm a Knicks fan. You know, I've, yeah. I've always been a Knicks fan. Um, despite the New Jersey Nets, being a team when I when I when I lived there, but you know I think you, you tend to kind of gravitate who who's good and the Knicks had a, had a great team in the '90s and very identifiable and were in some historic series. Uh, but the Knicks, you know, it's been a it's been a rough 20 years since then, <laughs> more uh, more downs than, than than ups. But I think that's the um, the beauty of, of of fandom is that you just kind of you know you you, you you weather the storm and it's not about just following them when they're when they're doing great you know you kind of always pay attention this year was a little a little disappointing i didn't really like the the team play especially julius randall i'm not really a big fan of his game so i i, I halfway through the season i kind of started not watching as much you know so when you talk to like people who are non-sports fans like friends or non-sports fans like how do you relate it to them or do, they, do like it's funny because i i it's like if I geek out about movies, like you'll talk to certain people about things and their eyes can just glaze over. Like <laughs> if you're trying to get people to talk about basketball who aren't fans, how do you approach that? I'm always curious. Cause you should be very passionate about it when you do. <laughs> I, <know>. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I'd say the only environment that I would talk to someone about it who's not interested is Twitter. And if they don't like it, then they could just unfollow me, I guess. So, because I'm sure my my feed might look a little random because I'll you know talk about music or I'm doing this or I got this show or this tour here's this guitar thing and then for a couple hours in the in in the evening I'll just start na- naming random players I'm sure some people are like what is he talking about I don't I don't get it but that's all right I mean we're, we're all uh you know I think fairly versatile whether it's there's a you know, a big football game going on and you'll see people talking about that or, you know, the Olympics or, or, or whatever boxing and, and UFC is obviously yeah. pretty big on Twitter. So, you know, even, I think we're all kind of, uh, okay with the idea that there are these events going on and we're going to be involved in. And that's honestly one of the best things about Twitter is, uh, live events and people kind of real time commenting and having this kind of global conversation. It's really fun. As opposed to all the vitriol that keeps going, <laughs> keeps getting. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I'm saying like, it's nice. It's nice that. to hear that side of it. What's that? It's nice to hear that side of it. Yeah, but I think it. I think it goes with with anything. Why, you know, like people live tweeting the Oscars or anything like that, or you know, it's like we're never gonna forget that night. You know, that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock from a Twitter perspective and. Oh, the, the memes are endless now. Oh my the god! Memes, you know, it's the, these. You know, the, the, despite it being an unfortunate event, from a Twitter perspective, it's it's what makes Twitter great, in my opinion. It just goes on and on. Yeah, I kind of, I probably spend some days. I'm, I keep looking on things. I'm like, I learn a lot, and sometimes it's just too much information. You know, social media. I mentioned for sports, it's like that too, because you can have an endless deluge of tweets going well, through all this. It's beyond. Stuff. It's beyond just the tweets. It's it's essentially, you know, going back to the 90s, once the 24-hour news cycle started, you yeah. know, and you have a million TV stations and radio stations and podcasts and all these YouTube channels where they need content constantly. So they just talk about a lot of bullshit <laughs> because yes. they have to talk about something. And so it's a lot of making mountains out of molehills and delving into drama that doesn't really exist and 
and I get it. You have to kind of feed the uh, feed the fire a little bit, but uh, but it, but it also a lot of it is very frivolous, and so you have to kind of be no no when to not take the bait. I think because it you know definitely kind of devolves into something that's not very intellectually uh, coherent often. Exactly. So when you played basket, when you were playing basketball more actively, what well actually what in, in high school what positions did you play? Was there any one thing you were better at, stronger at than others? Um, I mean, I pretty much played anything from shooting guard to power forward, you know. But I I preferred to be in that like small forward shooting guard position um, you know, because we had a pretty big team when I was a, a senior. But then a couple guys quit, so that I went from being the shooting guard to the. <laughs> <laughs> to 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 the power forward, so you're kind of banging a little bit. The team's not as big, not as long, makes defending a lot a lot harder. Um, but you know, more likely, you know, for high school, I'm probably like a small forward, um, probably the best role because I wasn't the best ball handler, you know. So I, I I don't know if my guard skills are probably the most competent. If I'm playing pickup, usually I'm one of the bigger guys playing, you know, because it it ain't the NBA where the average height is six foot seven, so you know, in the in the grand scheme of the, the populace, I think I think six two puts you in like the one percent or two or three percent of of height for men, I believe. Yeah, well, that's good. It works for basketball. It's true. <laughs> well, well, God, was it um, the guy from basketball? Minute Bowl was that his name? The guy from yeah. Africa who was like what? He was like seven. I think seven five. How long did he actually play for? I'm trying to remember. Um, I can't remember. I want to. I want to say you know, like nine or ten years, probably. It was a long time. Yeah. So I remember it was sort of a, he was a novelty at the beginning, and I'm like, oh, he can play. <laughs> you know, you kind of. Yeah, I mean, he was. The, the, well, the truth is, I mean, there's these diminishing returns with height that once you kind of get above seven three, um, mm-hmm. the kind of human body has difficulty with the running and coordination, and then you have physical ailments, whether it's knee stuff or foot stuff. There's always kind of an issue and mobility you know so you can have a guy that's really tall who can block shots but you know they if you can't stay in front of anybody if you can't get up the floor uh then you become kind of a liability but some of them you know have uh have done really well the guy um boban who i think is seven four or seven five uh yeah. is really good he's he's actually a really good player and, and can be really useful so it's you know and then yao ming who i think was seven Four seven five was actually really good, but you know his his um, ailments kind of forced him to retire way early. But he was really good when he did play. You know? Yeah, I can't I can't imagine what it's like to be that tall. Yeah. I'm five ten, so I'm like right serving the average. I think you know. Yeah, I mean, um, well, you know what it, I, I think what it is is it's probably really shitty ninety percent of the time when you're not playing basketball because the world isn't made for someone of your height, you know, and then. You literally have to make a bunch of money to be able to, like, you know, have a car that fits you and have a house that, <laughs> you know, is, meets kind of something where you're comfortable because it's a it's a a average height person's world. So I, I I imagine it's really uncomfortable and unlike especially if you're famous, right? If you're six foot eleven and you're Kevin Durant or something, you can't just put on a hoodie and have people not know who you are. You you literally are a foot taller than everyone around you, and you stick out like a sore thumb. So it must be a lot harder being famous as well when you're really tall. Yeah. So, like, what do you like at a game? Are you one of those really passionate fans that yells a lot, or you kind of just take it in? Or nah, nah. I'm 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 pretty chill. You know, I, I get into it. You know, I get. I mean, probably no different than when I'm at home, which is just you know, a lot of God damn, like wop or like wop wop or like God. You know, I'm kind of. You know, where I was like, man, what, what are you doing? I'll, I'll kind of be talking to them, like, as if they can hear me. You know, it's pretty. That's like when you watch you know, Jeopardy. I'm, I'm definitely engaged. What's that? It's like when you watch Jeopardy. I could have gotten that question. But then the thing is you don't think about the fact that you're not sitting there on TV in front of a bunch of people doing something. The mentality is very different than when you're an armchair. Oh, <laughs> trust me. No, no. I definitely, I never have the perspective that I can do better than anyone else there. You know, and, and keep in mind, you're also, and this is you know, kind of the fallacy of, of vantage point is like, yeah, you have this bird's eye view where you can see everything going on, but if you're on the floor, you're you're seeing, you know, you're only seeing things at these certain angles. So something that might be obvious to someone on TV is not obvious to someone in the game, especially when it's moving 
at such a lightning fast pace, you know? Yeah. What was your favorite personal moment playing basketball? So when I was a junior, um, I hit, I, it was, I was started the year as a, um, on, on JV and I played so well, they, they brought me into the, the varsity squad and I didn't get That's a ton cool. of playing, playing time, but it was a playoff game. Um, it was our first playoff game and I ended up hitting two three pointers in overtime to basically put us ahead. I actually hit a go ahead shot. Nice. I hit back to back three pointers, and then the other team came down, like, and hit a layup like easily. And I was like, "Good lord, we we you know, we lost the lead," and then we inbounded the ball, and our point guard took a half court shot and hit it, and won the we won the game. It was like a story storybook, but I but that wouldn't have happened if I didn't hit those two three pointers to kind, nice. of, to kind of get there. And then actually, then when I was a senior. I uh, I broke the record, the three point record for a game, which was seven at the time. I'm sure now someone's probably hit 15 because they have a really good. That we we were a really shitty team, and now they're like one of the top teams in the country. It was a it was a, yeah. a prep school, and they started recruiting. So I'm sure someone's hit a lot of three pointers now. But at the time, I broke broken the record. Fabulous. Yeah, I don't really have a. I think ba- little league was never like I had. I think there was one moment that I always liked as a friend of mine was making fun of the fact that I got picked to be a pitcher. And then when he got up there, I struck him out. So that was that was a good moment of redemption. Didn't even swing. He was just struck out. That's about it. It happens. It does. So, like, you know, and it's interesting, you know, you, know, you love sports and you love music. And another thing we wanted to talk about, obviously, is you, you do like to comment on social and political issues, which these days is a very – it's a trickier thing than it was with the, for the bands that we were growing up with. And I guess the only way cro- these kind of cross over is the taking a knee at various games. I know that happened in basketball also. It wasn't just football. Seems like, and I think the Milwaukee Bucks didn't they? At least one of the teams to stop playing. At least a couple. Yeah, games, that, right? that's when there was the uh, incident in Wisconsin. My best and friend so lives they, in Wisconsin. Yeah, they kind of um, protested that. I think it was just one game though. You know, the players decided to to do that, and that was kind of at the peak of you know that that protest movement happening in yeah. in twenty twenty. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 funny because. I do enjoy talking about these things, but it, I've definitely gotten, I think, more distant from that in the last few years. I feel like the the tenor of the discourse kind of during the Trump era leading into 2020 and that election and everything around it, like, and also, you know, there's a lot of acrimony within our band and issues yeah. with that, that, uh, <laughs> you know, um, that made the kind of playing field a lot more treacherous, you know? And yeah. so, and and part of that is kind of making a decision to go, okay, in this environment, you can go, okay, I'm going to be a political person and that's going to be who I am and that's how I'm going to express myself or I'm going to be a musician. And, and I think you have to, at some point, uh, make a decision about what, who you are and what you want to be. If you want to be an activist, go do that. But don't think people are going to necessarily uh, take you as seriously, I think, as a musician when you're spending all your time. You only have so many kind of eggs to, to put in each basket, you know. So, yeah. I, you know, I really d- decided to, like, focus on making my content uh, mostly derived from what I'm working on creatively, whether that's music or the podcast or things like that. And then pepper in social commentary uh where i feel like it's necessary but i don't want to because I, I have friends of mine who are musicians who it's like 90 percent of what they do is talk about politics and it kind of drives me crazy where i'm like dude just can you give it a break can you take a you take a day off take a minute it's like you know you, yeah and a, a news event can happen that you don't have to comment on it's okay the world will survive without your take you know and uh so i kind of think about that with myself as not wanting to be uh, just like beating people over the head with that stuff and, and having kind of being able to exhale. And and so I kind of balanced that with talking about movies and things that are funny and entertaining things and also uplifting things and trying to populate uh, my feed with things that are not just, here's what I hate about blank, you know, which is like, you know, I, I, it, it can just be insufferable. 
Well, it's it's tricky. Like if you're Bono and you too, it's one thing because there's always been kind of like a lot of social issues that come up in their music. What's interesting about the metal world is back in the '80s, I felt like a lot of the thrash bands, for example, they were kind of not, they were kind of railing against the powers that be, no matter who they were. You know, they would be criticized Reagan, they criticize, um, you know, Gorbachev or whoever, whoever else. Like they would, it wasn't simply about. Um, it was sort of like th- challenging the powers that be, like you're not representing us. And we had, of course, we had the threat of nuclear annihilation looming over us, which seems to be coming back. That's one of the 80s, parts of the 80s revival I wished wasn't coming back, <laughs> was that threat. Um, and I felt almost like post 9-11 is when you started to see a shift. That event really shifted. You started to see a lot more politics coming out about stuff. And then under the Bush administration, and that seems to slowly get, it was kind of growing and growing. And yeah, I think during the Trump area, it definitely hit like this peak, this fever pitch where everything became political. And it's tricky because stuff that seemed to be more about how you felt about people in power became much more about which side of the people in power you're with. Sure. Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, with, probably... with metal, it was sort of anti-establishment generally. Real metal, not like yeah. the hair bands and this stuff. And it, did you, did you, well, did you everyone, find that shift yourself? Did you did you notice that yourself, or was there a period you noticed this all changed? Yeah, I mean, I think. Listen, I think a lot of this started during the Clinton administration, um, and a lot of that ha- you know had to do with kind of the correlation between <clears throat> um, right wing radio, talk radio like Rush Limbaugh, and things yeah. like that getting re- really popular. You know, you basically had the beginnings of the internet and. You know, people of like-minded ideology being able to find each other and and coalesce. Then you have the kind of uh, the uprising of tabloid media. You know, OJ things like that. Watching you know people you know the Clarence Thomas trials, like that sensationalist type of thing, and and the uh, impeachment yeah. and Monica Lewinsky thing fed into that very well. And uh, most it seemed like primarily the um, opposition of Bill Clinton was less about policy and more about um, personality and kind of moral uh, yeah. points, right? And so, it, so, and it, it, so it became about, well, if whatever, like, validity you think that is, that was kind of, the, I think, the, the, the real shift. And then also, by the end of his administration, Fox News shows up, you know, in, in yeah. being kind of distinctly partisan, even if people, the perception was that the mainstream media was more liberal in general, um, this was kind of more um, kind of pronounced and obvious, you know? And so you, so, so that partisan framing got kind of rooted in there. Yeah. And then 2000 election happens and Florida and all, you know, and the, that craziness, then nine 11, right. And our conspiracy culture, right. And thing, thing, and thing, things like that. So, I think it got bigger after that, didn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, yeah. but I, but I, I, I think from those points, you just get this really slow-moving, divergent thing where people get stuck in their echo chambers. Um, I think the there's this this real distinct, I think, point, and it's really it is post Obama where the culture wars seem to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that was 2008 was like the last time things kind of seemed to be somewhat in the realm of re- like, like we could have reasonable conversations about policy, right? Like, Oh, I want to vote for this guy because I, I think he's going to lower taxes. Right. Or I think, you know, healthcare, but you know, whatever it's like these, it, it was, I, you know, I remember having like definitive discussions about policy with friends, you know, it wasn't about crazy wedge issues, you know, where now everything is a wedge issue. It's weird because we have this two party system that, you know, we get divided and people talk about that. And after a while, you know, you have Democrats. So, I mean, I have neighbors that are more conservative than me and we'll agree on stuff. We might get into a debate and I'll say, I'll say, Hey, see, we agree, agree, we agree on a lot of stuff. We may not agree necessarily on how to solve certain issues, but it's clear we agree that there are certain things that are issues. And now it's gotten trickier because I think people, bands, I think artists can say what, I mean, a lot of artists are talking about social issues. I don't think it's just entertainment. And I think 
certainly athletes have the right to voice their opinion. I think the problem that comes in is, yeah, if, if it gets too heavy-handed, that's a problem. And then number two, though, it can be heavy-handed on the other side where someone says you're not allowed to say whatever you want. But then if you do have the right to free speech, then the other conundrum is you have the right to free speech and you also have the right to be criticized. So it becomes this giant, you know what well, I mean? I, I, but, I, but I think you, you just pointed out there, it's, it's not about what you're allowed to say. People don't want to be criticized. They don't. They want to say, they want to say what they want to say and to have no clapback. And they think, oh, I'm not allowed to say it. It's like, no, you, you can say that. But, and I think, obviously, the, the point to where, you know, and this is kind of the crux of, of what is perceived as, as cancel culture is, okay, if person X says this thing, but then yeah. a group of people online make moves to get that person fired from their job or, you know, kicked off their record label or things yeah. like that. And that mobilization, which, by the way, is also free speech, right? I'm allowed with my speech to go sure. out and try and affect whatever. You know, we used to call it boy, you know, a boycott. You know, it's like, oh, you mm-hmm. you had such and such on, on your show, Johnny Carson, and me and um, this coalition of moms is going to go, we're going to call, we're going to go petition Tide and tell, and tell yeah. them not to sponsor your show, <laughs> right? Like, this is old as anything, right? It's just the people who want to do these things have to have more tools at their disposal. And that's, that's, it's, that's the, the double-sided coin of, of speech is that people can use their speech to try and shut down your speech or, or at least make you feel the pain for having opinions or ideas that they feel are, are dangerous. And, but to kind of your, your other point about you and your neighbors having a conversation, I think the problem now, and this is going back, you know, at this point, you know, six or seven years is we can't, we can't have a conversation about what we disagree on if we can't actually agree on what is real. So if if that's a big you, problem, if now. you're yeah. if we can't if you're we right. don't have a shared reality, then there's basically no conversation. And so you have two divergent far ends of a spectrum who have completely different realities of what they think is happening. And so those people can have no conversation, and then. People like me, who's trying to get a fully scoped idea of it and, and listen to everyone in good faith, uh, we're looked at as the actually the primary enemy more than even the opposite of the spectrum. The centrist is the, considered to be the uh, the worst, you know, uh, actor in in in, in all this, and and so yeah, uh, that's a, that's a tough environment. So if, if, if I'm going, you know, oh, COVID isn't real. Right? How can we have a conversation about, uh, you know, rules or vaccines or anything if, if you don't even believe it's real? If, if you, you know, so it's and you and I'm just making that as an example. No, it, it, it's a scary thing, isn't it? Because you look at people online, and I mean, I I'm a Gen Xer, and I and I, a lot of people sit there and they'll criticize millennials and they'll go, I don't know, man. Some of the Gen Xers and the younger boom and the boomers and the, you know, the way they were expressing their opinions online was like 15 year olds. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is what you're actually going to say to somebody. You wouldn't say that in real life, first of all. And secondly, yeah, there's there's there is this kind of reality that's been shaped by social media that doesn't really exist. I know people get real. I got a couple people get really angry, and, we, and even on, they were allegedly on my side because it's just sort of like I found an interesting tweet. I, I liked your tweet about the whole Will Smith thing. So you brought that up. You said we as a society love justified violence, so I expect a lot of he had it coming takes, which was which interesting. Was so it wasn't exactly really what happened. Lit- yeah, it wasn't political. It was it was more of a social commentary, actually. And there are, there is also a difference. You could make that and not be political about it. You're just saying. Well, I think what happens now is you have a big portion of people, especially on on Twitter, who are engaged fully as in combatant in the culture war. And in that mm-hmm. culture war, there's these very like definitive like, I am pro mask. I am anti mask. I am pro, right. They have these like I am pro-Biden, I am anti-Biden, right? And so they have this very binary way of looking at the world. Yeah. And so then they'll try and to any event, they'll try and affix it to fit this bi- this binary uh, that isn't really real, right? Like, um, and they'll, they'll make these takes because a lot of people, these commentators and YouTubers and pundits, their brand is I'm pro this. I'm with this tribe. I'm against this tribe. So they're going to find a way to con- contort whatever yeah. issue in, into that. And I'm trying to do the opposite of that and go, hey, some, some of these things exist completely of their own. They have nothing to do with 
COVID. They got this has nothing to do with Trump. It's just this. We're talking about this thing. Let's talk about this thing and and have have an idea about it. Um, and that's yeah. a, and it's. But I I think moments like that because a lot of people are like man I was that was so I was so sick of that everyone talking about it. But I'm like I think that event was actually worth having those conversations because they these are big questions. When is it okay to use violence in in public, right? Because think right. about it, my, my, uh, Mike Tyson just beat up a guy last week, and I pretty much saw no takes of people saying he shouldn't have hit him. Everyone was fine with that, right? Well, that that was the, that was the thing. Like, you know, it's it, it's sad that like, the, with the war in Ukraine, that's a lot more violence that needs a lot more attention than the Will Smith thing. But I think what the the Oscars thing pointed out. What I think you're talking about now with the Mike Tyson thing is, you know, we've become very uncivil as a society. And, you know, it was a dumb joke, and I'm sure they knew it was a dumb joke. But then there's a little hypocrisy in the way Will Smith didn't laughed at it first, and then his wife gets mad, so then he goes up. And after a while, it's like, you know, if you were going to go up on stage anyway, my take is, you could just berate him in front of everybody and say, you know what, man, that's not cool. But that's not what he chose to do. And it actually is funny because people talk about liberal Hollywood. Isn't that kind of what an action movie star would do? Like a cliche action movie thing is instead of saying, let's talk about this like you and I are talking about, I'm just going to hit you. And so I'm like, there's a great quote from Roger Ebert about Hollywood. He goes, you know, the Oscars is the one time of year that Hollywood gets to pat itself on the back for doing these arty pictures. And the rest of the year, they're bringing us Texas Chainsaw 3D. And I was like, that is so true. Like... I worked in Hollywood, and people talk about liberal Hollywood. I don't buy that tag either. I think a lot of the talent might skew more left, but a lot of the money people skew more right. And well, it's, it's, per, this... it's performative liberalism. It's it's in the idea that uh, hmm. it's a group for a lot of, of them. People, yeah, I think well uh, that it's a group of people that want you know their whole uh, thing is that they're likable and that and and that they're bankable, and so that essentially they'll sway with whatever is the most um, kind of uh, publicly, I guess, politically correct at, at that given time or the thing they think will yeah. be most advantageous to that. I think that is often tough to triangulate, right? Always trying to guess who is being genuine and who isn't being genuine. Um, but I imagine behind closed doors, a, a lot more of those people are probably less liberal quote-unquote i'm using that in the most kind of vague sense a general um, sense yeah 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 um you know more than they they let on because they're trying to you know they're trying to protect their their money <laughs> their brand <laughs> you know well you know, any, it's isn't, like, it, isn't it the same thing about a lot of these right-wing commentators though because i <clears throat> excuse me i feel like i look at something like ann coulter and sometimes i'm like does she really buy all this or is it just sure. she knows it's going to sell her books, that there's an angry conservative crowd that's going to buy her books. So if she just says that, it doesn't matter if she fully believes it or not. That's also her way of making money. So there's well, a lot of things on both sides where you can go, I don't know, man. Is This this is just theater. Well, that, But that's different, though. And, I, and here's the reason why. Because I think unless it, it's someone like, um, I don't know, like Mark Ruffalo, who's like yeah. pretty outspoken about it. Oh, sure. I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare someone who's just like an actor who's just trying to make their way and not ruffle feathers as someone who their job is being a political commentator. And to me, it, there's a distinct difference on the left and right because I think the performative element of the political commentator on the right is more comparable uh, to what's called kayfabe in uh, wrestling, which is okay. essentially uh, the idea that when the camera's on, you're in character, and I'm and uh, Ann Coulter is a heel. Her character is that she yeah. says outrageous things that pisses liberals off, and makes and throws red meat to the to the people that want that mean the mean girl yeah, yeah. <laughs> take and it and her being tall and skinny and blonde gives her a license to be that much more cutthroat with her opinions, right? And so but isn't like, that acting also, though? Oh no, ab absolutely. And she plays up to it. She's a she's good at her job as a as the heel, and it, and it works. But they're giving their audience what they want, and, and some people go, "We'll call it a grift," right? Oh, there, it's a grift. I'm like, is it a grift if the people consuming it are happy with the the product and they're happy they're happy to give you their money when they buy a book and go see you at the speaking tour and 
you know, subscribe to your Patreon or whatever. So it's a mutually beneficial system. Again, it's that speaks tough to your, to... It speaks to your echo chamber thing, though. It speaks to what you were talking about with echo chambers, because it kind of goes back to that, right? They're consuming the reality that they want. Well, it's, it's political comfort food, and I, and I think we're all... I'm guilty of that sometimes, right? I think sure, to be, yeah. to be challenged is work. It's mental work. It's, it's, it's sometimes, you know, I, you know, and I had this period, you know, what I would, and I, you know, I stopped listening to Joe Rogan. It's not like I w- won't ever listen to Joe Rogan again. I, I'll probably, hopefully I'll, I'll go back. Cause I still think he's great at what he does, but when he got so much into, I feel like every time he's talking about vaccines, he's talking about this. I'm just like, dude, just, and when I hear things that are just not accurate and not researched, and then there's someone else there not challenging it and no one's challenging it. It's like, it's almost stressful to go like, this is, I'm like, and I listen, I'm like 10 million people right now are listening to bullshit and they probably believe it because they trust these people and that. And so when you, and so it's like this thing of like, a, like I follow tons of people on Twitter that I disagree with. Uh, but it's really important to me that I understand their perspective even if, you know, it, it's because I don't want to be in an echo chamber. It's really important to me to not do that. Um, it's critical thinking, you know. which is, you know, I think that that's the term that gets tossed around. I mean, I, I think the problem is, is not being taught that early. Part of it's also education. Um, I remember when I was at NYU, I took a class. It was an English class that was taught by a, a graduate law student. I think her name was Mary Dietz. And she was, I always remembered her because she did challenge us. And I remember once we had to read, we had to read stories and we had to read and discuss the subtext. And there's a story about a, a woman who had assaulted this guy on a train station uh, because he had allegedly been, you know, like, you know, being inappropriate with her. And what was interesting is I read the story and it was written by a man and it very clearly made it seem like he, she was the aggressor in this situation. It's like she was misinterpreting something and he was the passive thing in this. I'm like, I don't know, man, living in New York at that time in the late 80s, I could totally see some women getting really tired of these assholes out there. And sure. I felt the story probably was really slanted in a way that didn't make sense. But if you read between the lines, you know, I think this guy probably was said, really, maybe she's nuts or really he had pissed her off and she got tired of it and she fought back, you know? And you have to read, it, 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 sometimes, you, sometimes you have to look at the source and sometimes you have to look at how it's worded. And I don't like to, I can't stand nightly news because no matter what it is, it's always the dramatic music and they're trying to get you tense and you'll watch at the end of it. You're like, oh, whereas like if you and I go on to different sites and check out like the hill.com is interesting because they're kind of a centrist website. Actually, people think they're on the right, but I actually really consider them to be centrist. They're really kind of in the middle. A lot of it is just straight up reporting and you can see in the comments who's on what side, but they try not to sensationalize it. Which I think is important, well, and that we've gotten news was a loss leader when I was when you and I were growing up. Now it's a money maker, and that's the big problem here. Yeah. Well, and was that law that they they, they changed the the fairness doctrine? That you know, that's a big uh, change in the in the news media. But I think it's really important to to point this out that uh, the way different news sources are biased is not necessarily how they report something. Because a lot of that is just editorializing, right? Like, so you go on Sean Hannity, and it's like, oh, he's gonna, he's giving his opinion about yeah, a news yeah. story, but he's not doing the actual reporting. Um, it's essentially selection, right? So, a, yeah. you know, Huffington Post, they'll, they're just going to cover the stories that help their narrative and disregard the stories that don't. So they're not lying, but they're just not showing the, the the full picture. So I actually am subscribed to this website called uh, Blindspot, and it shows you it's a newsletter, and it's also a website. But it shows you here are the stories that the left was not shown. Here are the right. stories the right was not shown because those Breitbart chooses to show. Oh, here's a black dude who did some crime because that's the story they want to tell. Here's you know, uh, yeah. here's a story about Nazis in Ukraine, because that's the story we want to tell. And then if you're going to MSNBC.com, they're going to, you know, <laughs> here's the Trump uh, kids law they broke. Right. It's yeah. so all that stuff is happening, but it's just saying, well, we're going to cover the things that we feel is moving our agenda. But it's not lying. It's just it's just selection. 
you know, and so it's well, important Well, it is, to- and that's where a lot of the arguments come in. And I mean, like, you know, even though I'm more of a liberal, like, there is some super woke stuff that drives me crazy because it's like every little thing becomes offensive to people. Like, you cannot be offended by everything. And you well, don't, start fight, that's your, a, don't start fight with your grandparents because it's probably not going to change anything. Like, unless yeah, they're really oppressing your life, they're just sitting there watching TV, doing whatever. I, I just don't think that's an argument worth having, in all honesty. Yeah. Like, well, if you have a parent you have a problem with, or what, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's for, figuring out who you really need to be talking to, I guess, and having these conversations with rather than just letting it out in everybody, whether you're on the left, right, center, whatever it is. Usually it's more on the polls, right? Yeah, well, it's really important to remember is... is Things like the, your mindset about that is a, is a very, very mainstream mindset. This, there's a, you know, we're talking 10 to 12% of Americans are what would people describe as far left or like leftist or like the woke kind of, or, you know, yeah. v, you know, kind of sect. That group is very, very loud on in social media spaces and yes. then and but they're and they're also overly represented in tech at universities and all these different areas that have in media that have a, a big influence so they have a big megaphone but they don't represent most of uh most of americans and it also skews very young so if you're above a certain age hmm. then you'll yeah. you even if you're left of center you'll have a, a a much different take on this and so it's I think a lot of people have to remember that the quote unquote woke mob or this group group of people, um, there's not as many of them as people think they are. They just, they just have a lot, a big voice on the internet and that most people understand that a lot of this stuff is overblown and, and you know, just because you say things are different now, it's like, no, no, you actually, people have to take time to evolve. Like it's just not gonna happen over just because you have a new word that you think we need to use doesn't mean everyone's going to adopt it overnight. Like things have to, things have to simmer and it changes. It's hard if you want change. I understand that it can be very, very people in your, when I was younger, I was like that. You get very impatient for wanting change at the same time. Like, you know, I hear people There's complaining no patience about now. Patience. Gen Z, and what? Gen Z has no, 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 the and, and no, I'm sure no young, uh, generation at the time they were young had patience for the things they were living through, right? But yeah. that lack of patience does not mean you can necessarily change the world. Like if you're, they did a lot of protests against uh, Vietnam, thousands, right, over many years, and not one of those fucking protests stopped the Vietnam War, not one. You right. know, so being fed up with something. And wanting to change it is not those things are too are not always commensurate with each other, you know. I think it would have been like wars. Sorry, go ahead. No, you could be someone who is fed up with slavery in the 1700s, and guess what? You still had to live to be 273 years old to survive the end of slavery. Like being fed up with something and thinking that you have the ability to change it isn't uh, you know. And by the way, that person was right. You could still be 100 percent right that an institution or way of things is totally wrong and you want to change but it's like but you can't change everybody and you can't do it overnight and sometimes you know but i think there's a lack of acceptance i think we live in a world where people have so much um agency over cultivating their environment oh i'm i'm you know i'm only gonna watch these shows and i'm only gonna hang with these people and if you say something wrong to me i'm gonna block you and they think they can cultivate the world you can't you you know you kind of have to live someone in something where you're not gonna like everything all the time so how's as far as I mean as, as so as when you're when you're not on stage and podcasting what what is is Doc Coyle any different? I don't think so. I'm I'm pretty uh I guess uh transparent about you know just my regularness. I try and really amplify that like kind of sh- try to show people how cool I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I mean, like, whatever, like, you know, posting a picture that's maybe not the most uh, flattering or, you know, making a meme out of yourself. And, you know, and, and by the way, and that's a little tough because I think from an industry standpoint, there's probably a lot of people in people who manage the band or maybe or the label where they want you to project the image of the flawless rock star whose life is amazing and you're always killing yep. it and there's no never any problems and it, and 
I have a lot of difficulty around that lack of authenticity. You know, I think, you know, cause, but I think you can, I do a lot of really cool things. And I have a really cool life and I have access to a lot of environments and people yeah. and, and stuff that's, I don't have to be inauthentic to show how cool it is, you know, but at the same time, don't let going, that get to your head. <laughs> As I say. Exactly. Well, listen, it's a, it's, it, it's, it's quite a balance, you know, um, but you know, all the people I know in this industry who have had vastly more success than me, um, can keep it, keep themselves level headed. And so can I, right? Like you want to, you want to follow those people and pay attention to those people. Um, who, who do understand that all this stuff, even when you're kicking ass and everyone's, you know, giving you all the love, yeah. that that's all temporary. Um, but it's all about, you know, for me, it's just about what I'm doing at the moment and not getting wrapped up in, you know, the glory, I guess. I guess, you know, like, like that's that's not what it's about. It's, it's not about, look how cool I am. Give me attention. Tell me how great, you know, kind of sit, sitting in that. It's about... You do something cool, you know, whether it's making a record or a song or a cool podcast or an article or whatever, and getting, of, of course, we're all somewhat addicted to that validation, but it's all yeah. about, okay, that's cool, I did something cool, now what's the next thing? And then you just, and you keep moving, and, and, and so, I, you know, I just get in the mindset of never getting satisfied with any one thing, because I think you're always motivated, like, oh, you write a cool song? Well... Got to write another one. Yeah, I make a great guitar solo. Well, let's make another great guitar solo and, and just keep it moving and keep growing and um, not getting wrapped up in that, you know. But I don't know, you know, it's, it, I want to keep moving up and getting bigger and doing cool things and doing rock star shit. It's fun. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much. It was kind of an epic chat. Hell yeah. You know? I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me for the next episode featuring Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.